0: You're listening to audio provided by Valleydale Church. To find more resources or to donate to this ministry, please check out valleydale.org. Mike, uh, for sharing, for reading God's Word. If you've got your copy of God's Word, that's where we're going to be this morning in Jude. And uh, I left off with verse 9, so I'm going to pick up in verse 10 this morning. Cassandra, in Greek mythology, Cassandra was the daughter of the king of Troy. She was an incredibly beautiful woman, according to the story. Uh, So beautiful that Apollos, the god, fell in love with her. uh, And was carried away with uh, Cassandra. And because of that, gave her a special gift. And the special gift that he gave her was the ability to see the future. So she could foresee what was coming. But when she spurned the love of Apollos, he then turned in anger and put a curse on her. And the curse was that no one would ever believe anything that she said. So here she was, this woman, who had the ability to see the future. And every time she would warn someone of what was going to happen, they would simply look and say, we don't believe you. Now, that's just mythology, but it actually happened to a guy by the name of John O'Neill. Now, I don't know if that name rings a bell with you, but John O'Neill worked for the FBI. He was an FBI agent. In fact, in the 1990s, he was given the task of following a small group of terrorists uh, around the world. And he began to do work on this group called Al-Qaeda. Nobody had ever heard of them. Nobody knew about them. Uh, They attempted to do a number of things that he tied them to. Uh, There was uh, the USS Cole and there were other events around the world. There was the bombing of the World Trade Center there in New York City uh, and uh, things like that. But nobody knew who Al-Qaeda was. However, John O'Neill was convinced that they were going to strike and that they were going to strike America here in the homeland like they had attempted to do in the bombing of the World Trade Center. And so the more convinced he was, the more adamant he became to his superiors. He would go to his boss there at the FBI and he would get uh, very passionate about what he believed was going to be a strike on the United States. But they would not take it seriously. Uh, John then decided he'd go to the CIA. And he went to the CIA. And in fact, he came to the place where he said, I'm just going to go directly to the White House and tell him in the White House. And so he did. But nobody listened to the warnings that John O'Neill was giving. In fact, by August of 2001, uh, the people at the FBI were so tired of John jumping over. Uh, you know, those that he was supposed to respond to going directly to someone else's superior or someone else higher up and becoming more and more aggressive about his belief that Al-Qaeda, this terrorist group, was going to attack the United States that they fired him from the FBI. They pushed him out. He took a job. He took a job as head of security at the World Trade Center. And someone said, John, that's the perfect job for you. They'll never attack there because they've already tried once to blow it up. And John O'Neill said, no, it's exactly where they will attack because they're coming back to complete what they did not finish. And a month later, you know what happened on 9-11-2001. John was in the South Tower when the planes hit. He called his wife to tell her that he was okay and that he was making his way out of the South Tower, but he never did. They found his body in a stairwell in the rubble that was left after that al-Qaeda attack of those from Saudi Arabia who flew the planes into those buildings. Here was a man who had warned everybody he could warn and no one listened to him. And in the end, he did not even listen to himself. Jude is giving us in the church a warning. He comes to the churches of his day that he's writing to, and I really suspect as I continue to study this book, it must be the same churches that Peter had written to back in 1 Peter chapter 1. Uh, All of these churches that he lists that are across Asia Minor, I think he's writing to these same churches, and he writes to them. He says, what I'm warning you about is not what is going to come. He says, it is already operative in the church right now. That's why you must stand up now and contend for the faith that has been delivered once for all to the saints. So he warns them and he says, listen, this warning is God's word for the church. Now, if you've got your Bibles there, I'm going to pick up in verse 10. Verse 11, he gives you exposition. Now, I've told you last week, uh, this is pure midrash This is a sermon like the rabbis would give. You have exposition, you have illustration, and then you'll come to application. Verse 11 is the exposition. Uh, Verse 12 and 13 is going to be chock full of illustration. There are five of them there. Some people count six, some people count seven. Uh, I count five illustrations that are there. And then you're going to come to 14 and 15, and that is going to be uh, the application. He's going to apply. He's going to show you how it applies in the life of a believer. But verse 10 and verse 16 to me are bookends. He bookends the sermon. It's kind of like an introduction and then a conclusion. uh, And uh, he kind of encases it with verse 10. Now look at verse 10. He comes and he says this, these men. Now you've read that about three times already. These men revile the things which they do not understand. Uh, They are reviling the things, rejecting the things they don't understand. Well, what do they not understand? The word of God. They don't understand the gospel. They don't understand uh, God redeeming the world through his son in Jesus Christ. They don't understand any of that. But look at what they do. And the things which they do know by instinct, like unreasoning animals, by these things they are destroyed. He said what they're doing is they're reasoning in their own mind. When he says that they're reasoning by instinct like animals, he's essentially saying they don't have the Spirit of God they're like an animal without the Spirit of God. Animals don't bear the image of God. They don't have uh, the, the Spirit of God in them. He said, so they're just reasoning in their own mind, uh, their own judgment, leaning on their own understanding. And he says, they don't understand any of this because they don't have the Spirit. And you say, well now how do you know that's what he's saying? Look at verse 19. Verse 19, he says this, These are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, devoid of the capital S, Spirit. It, it helps when you read the whole thing. <laughs> uh, so, that's what he's saying here. He says, These are just devoid of the Spirit. And then he comes in the end, in verse 16, and he says, This is their characteristic. This is how they are characterized. This is how they operate. This is how they they show themselves in the church. Look at verse 16. They are grumblers. Lord have mercy. Uh, It's the same thing that Israel did when they came out of Egypt. That entire generation, he's already talked about them. They died in the wilderness. And what did they do? That entire generation did nothing but grumble. They grumbled and grumbled and grumbled about everything. And they did what? They found fault, finding fault. Now I've brought to you, this is, I am telling you, the best little book. If, listen, if the church burns down, anybody in here, you run to my office and you grab this off my desk. This is The Linguistic Key to the Greek New Testament by Reinecker and Rogers. I'm going to read you what Reinecker and Rogers say about this word right here. Uh, it, because I think sometimes y'all think I make this stuff up. So I want you to listen to what Reinecker and Rogers says. It's an interesting word. Um, mem psi moi. Ross is the word. mimsa roimos. Uh, and here is what it says. Complain, complaining of one's lot. To grumble about one's condition in life. The word was used to describe a standard Greek character in a Greek play. You're satisfied with nothing that befalls you. You long for what you haven't got. In winter you wish it were summer and in summer that it were winter. You are like the sick folk Um, uh, hard to please and one who complains about his lot in life. Well, it goes on, but you get the picture. Do you remember the little uh, uh, statement of Jesus in in Luke chapter 7 where he talks about the children who sat there and they said, well, we played the flute, but you wouldn't dance. And we sang a dirge, but you wouldn't cry. Nothing we do satisfies you. Nothing ever makes you happy. If we do something to make you laugh, you won't laugh. If we do something to make you cry, you won't cry. You're you're never satisfied. That's what he's saying here. These are the people that are in the church that have already found themselves in places of leadership. They're grumblers, fault-finding, following after their own desire, their own drives, their own passion. They speak arrogantly. Flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. Do you remember when we opened this up, I shared with you that uh, the word that Jude used is that they came in and they settled down beside somebody and they began to build a relationship. They would flatter you. They would butter you up. They would build you up. They would build this relationship off of this false admiration that they had for you in order to hook you into their good nature so that you would support and follow their agenda that they were going to unhatch in the church. Now, are you getting all of this? Because it sounds just like a Baptist church. Because that's exactly what happens. And so he says, you've got to watch these folks. This is what they're doing. They are interested in gaining an advantage, using you to promote and further them moving into leadership so that they can push their own personal agenda. Now, there you've got, the, here you've got the introduction, you've got the conclusion. You've got that. Now, I'm going to take you to what he's going to begin to talk about in verse 11. And I want you to see this because Jude is telling you that God's warnings, you'd better listen to God's warnings. God's warnings reveal God's wisdom. If you don't listen to his warning, you're going to be caught in a bad situation. His warnings reveal his wisdom. And he starts this whole message out with the warning. Whoa, look at verse 11. Do you see it right there? You know what that is in the Hebrew? Have you ever heard the expression oyve? That's the word right there. Oy in the Hebrew. Oy. It doesn't mean a cotton-picking thing. It's an expression. Uh, Oy. (laughs) Oh, no. Woe is me. This is terrible. It's just an expression of woe. And every time you see it, it generally introduces judgment that comes. Jesus, Matthew chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23, he gives eight woes. Woe to you scribes and Pharisees. Woe to you scribes and Pharisees. In fact, I'm just going to turn back there for a second. If you look back, Matthew chapter 23, just... Just listen to what Jesus says right there at the end after he pronounces these eight woes on these scribes and Pharisees. He's he's speaking in Jerusalem. And uh, then he's going to speak to the entire city of Jerusalem. He comes in verse 34 and he says, Therefore, behold, I'm sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. So that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah. Zechariah was the last prophet and they killed him. The son of Berechiah. Whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I say to you. All these things are going to come on this generation. There's the sweet. The nice. The meek. The mild Jesus doing what? Pronouncing judgment. In fact, just listen to the rest of this. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you from now on, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Second coming. Zechariah chapter 14. When they look upon him whom they have pierced, they will weep. They will mourn for one as who weeps for an only son. Jesus gives a warning. That's how he starts this out. Now I'm back in Jude, verse 11, chapter 3. I'm looking to see who's looking for chapter (laughs) 3. Woe to them. Now listen to what he does. He's going to come and this is what he's going to say. That God warns that apostasy presents itself in personality. Now you've read this statement over and over. These men, these men, these men. I told you before that anthropoi is, is a generic term and literally can be translated these people. Mike read out of a translation that read these people. That's the best way to read it. Not just men, it's women as well. And so he's going to come now and he's going to show you uh, the actual character, the personality type. He's been talking about these men. You know, you get that in a Baptist church. Well, you know, there are people in the church that are saying this. Well, there are those over here saying this. And you never know who in the world those are. Who are those people, you know? Who are all these people? Well, Jude doesn't want you to think that's what he's doing. So now he says, I'm going to give you a noun, a name, a face. I'm going to put a personality here with it. So he comes and he talks about Cain, Balaam, and Korah, three people. Here's the exposition. Now watch this. Let me just, uh, all right, here's a timeout. If you've got a copy of God's Word, I want you to watch this. Uh, A lot of you aspire to be good Bible students. Let me show you how to look at a, a text. Look at this where he mentions Cain. But he doesn't just mention Cain. He doesn't just give you the who. He gives you the what. It's the way of Cain. It is the era of Balaam. It is the rebellion of Korah. Then he's going to give you the how of all of that. Not just the who and the what. But now look. Here is the how. How did they do it? They have gone the way of Cain. They have rushed headlong into the era of Balaam. They have perished. Now he tells you this is what happened when they made the decision. Death was already written all over them. Even before they died. They perished in the rebellion of Korah. So when you come to a verse like this, you come to a passage, you've got to stop and note now everything that's being said. It's not just Cain, but it is it is gone the way of Cain. It's not just Balaam, they've rushed headlong into the era of Balaam, and they have perished in the rebellion of Korah. Now let me show you something about each one of these, because this is what Jude is talking about. He comes right here and he says this, Cain was self-directed. In his own life, he was self-directed. When he brings up, gone the way of Cain, every Jew there would have understood exactly what he was talking about. They would have known that God came to Cain and said, Cain, hey man, you sure are, you you're really eating up with some anger here. You're really mad. Let me tell you, God now speaking to Cain. Listen, he, sin is crouching at the door. And if you don't master him, it's going to be bad news. If you don't get a hold of this, what did Cain do? He went in his own self-directed way. I'm not going to listen to that. That's not the way I'm going to handle this. That's not the way I'm going to deal with my brother Abel. I'm just going to do what comes in the moment. I'm self-directed. I'm not directed by anybody else. Nobody else can lead me. And so what does he do? He kills his brother. And so Jude is coming and he's saying there will be those that get in. And they're in the church and sometimes they get into leadership who will not be directed. You can't tell them Now, this is a Greek term, a cotton-picking thing. (laughs) They are self-directed. Maybe good folks, but they are very self-directed. So now he comes now to Balaam, and Balaam was self-indulgent. You may remember the story of Balaam. I've got to give it to you quick. Uh, These Hebrews were coming out of Egypt, and they were going to pass through the territory of Moab, and the king of Moab said, no way, you're not coming here. I don't want you in my country. Don't want you passing through here. I don't want any of that. And so he goes and he hires a prophet by the name of Balaam. And he tells Balaam, I want you to curse Israel. Now, he wouldn't do it at first, but the money got good enough to where this self indulgent prophet, he wanted wanted the money. He says, Okay, all right, I'll do it. And he goes out to curse Israel, but God did something to Balaam that every time he, this is what I wish God would do to our mouths in the church, that every time he opened his mouth, the curse out came a blessing. Did y'all ever see the movie Liar, Liar? I saw a blip of that where every time, oh, what's his face would go to, tell, out would come the truth, <laughs> you know. Well, that's what God did to Balaam. And so Balaam just, he goes to him and he says, listen, this is, he knows what's going on. God's doing this. There's nothing I can do. God's not going to let me curse them. And so what does Balaam do? Now I have to skip all the way to the 31st chapter of Numbers to tell you this because you don't get the whole story there. Uh, Israel goes off into sin. They go off, the men go off with the women of Moab. And the women of Moab seduce them into bad activity, immorality, and the worship of those Moabite gods. But you get over to the 31st chapter of Numbers and you discover that it was Balaam who in his wicked old heart said, I can't beat God this way. I bet I could beat him this way. And he goes and he tells the Moabites, this is what you need to do. Send all of your pretty women out there and you will lure away all of the Hebrew men. And the Bible says that they killed him with the sword, Balaam. Judgment came. He was self indulgent. I want what is most important to me. And I don't care what I have to do to get it. Now, the third is Korah. Now, none of this is in chronological order. That's not the way he's writing this, he's doing it uh, for a purpose this way. He gives you now this whole issue of a guy who feels self important. The whole thing of Korah was this, I don't like Moses being the preacher, I want to be in charge, we're going to get rid of Moses' as preacher, and I'm going to be the guy. Now that's basically it. He he essentially says, I just don't like this guy, why shouldn't I be, listen, I'm an important person myself. Nobody knows how really important I am around here. Nobody knows how critical I am to this whole thing. I, I, am, I am one of the priestly families the, uh, of Korah. And I should be leading and somebody should put me in that position to lead it instead of Moses. And you know what God does? He opens up the ground and he just swallows him. He just opens up the ground. And he doesn't just swallow Korah because let me tell you, when you go into rebellion in your home, you lead the rest of your family that way. And not only your family, but those that your family influences. Because there was a, a large group that gathered up around Korah to say, yeah, we're tired of Moses' leadership too. Well, you know, why should he? Oh, the only reason I know Moses should have been there is because God did it. And they didn't want it. And God says, that's fine with me. And he just opens up the ground and he, moves, he removes the opposition. And one moment, they all fall down in the ground. And the ground covers them up. Now, what you've got in all of that is you've got somebody that is here that is saying, I am self-direct. I'm going to listen to myself. I'm going to determine what's right. There is the self-indulgent. I'm going to get what I want. My passions, my desire is more important than anything else. And the third thing is I want everybody to know how important I am in that place. Now, I want you to contrast that. Now, I'm going to do something here. I want you to contrast that to Jesus. Was Jesus self-directed? Not my will, but thy will be done, Jesus prayed. Was he self-indulgent? The Bible says that he had nowhere to lay his head. That when they crucified him, the only thing he had was the garment that was on his back. And they gambled for that. Did he feel as if he were self-important? Did he feel like, you know, I am all important here? Listen to what he says in, in Luke chapter 19 verse 10. For the son of man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. He comes in, in, uh, in Mark's gospel, and listen to what he says back in Mark's gospel, chapter 10, verse 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. He didn't have that self-importance about him. And to give his life a ransom for many, he came to seek and to save that which was lost. Now, you just look. You look at those who get in the church who are self-directed, those that are self-indulgent, and those that feel self-importance, and you compare it to Jesus Christ. And he warns you, you be warned about these people. Now, he doesn't say go on a witch hunt through the church. But he says you'd better listen to the wisdom of God in the warning of God in the church. Now let me give you the second thing since y'all seem so excited about that first thing there. Let me give you the second thing and the second thing is this, is God warns that apostasy delivers itself in duplicity, in deception. Deception. Uh, In saying one thing and doing another. Now he comes to the illustration. Verse 12 and verse 13. And he's going to give you, I've got five of these uh, that I find here. uh, But just watch as he gives these. And let me get through them uh, rather quickly. These are the men. These are the people. And he's going to give you five different images. Five different pictures. He says, they are hidden reefs in your love feasts. When they feast with you without fear, fear, caring for themselves. Now, let me point out one thing right here. You see that little word "caring" right there. Some of you and think I think Mike read it as shepherd, uh, shepherding. Um, that's the word. It's um, it's the word for shepherd in the in the Greek. Um, it's the word for shepherd. And so he, he is saying they shepherd themselves. They don't shepherd the flock. They don't shepherd the people of God. They shepherd themselves. They look out for themselves. Now that's the bottom line. But go back up and look at what he's saying. He's talking about a love feast. Now let me explain that briefly. We did that last uh, Passion Week. I think we're going to do it again this Passion Week. Uh, this, this year in Passion Week at the end of Passion Week. We're going to come together and do that very thing. The church would do this. When the church would gather, the New Testament church, they would gather, whether they were in Philippi or Thessalonica or Corinth or wherever, they would come together and they would have a big meal. They would come and listen to the Word of God. They would be taught. There would be biblical instruction from God's Word, which was the Old Testament, and uh, they would sing some hymns because we've got some of those. Uh, there are some christological hymns throughout the New Testament. So obviously they would sing, they would they would praise, they would fellowship. In fact, the love feast, and it sounds a little, uh, it sounds a little um, like it could be something that's not. And that's what the Romans thought. They, they're they're having an orgy. They were not having anything of the kind. They were coming together to shepherd one another. Uh, This was done out of love. Uh, There were those in the fellowship that really had very little to eat. And so they would bring all of this in order to feed the body. uh, So that people were cared for. They would care for people that were sick. They would care for people who were having difficulty in life. Uh, and, And so they would gather to love on one another. And they called it a love feast. It got so misused and abused in the church that in 1 Corinthians, Paul looks at the church and he says, don't come down here to the church and eat anymore. You've abused this. What was good, what was wholesome, what was a great idea, you have turned it into something abusive. So eat before you come to church. Now, there were those that were misusing that time to build a Consensus. They were hidden reefs. They were off the radar. They were under the water. You could not see them. But what they were doing was they were gutting the bottom of the ship of the church. They were clawing it out so that the world could come in, so that their influence could come in. They would get at these love feasts and they would begin to build consensus. They would grumble, they would fault find, they would nitpick, they would do everything they could to build a group around them so that they could get a hold of the church and push their agenda. He says that's the illustration of these people. You come to the second one. There are five of these. The second one is this. They are clouds without water carried along by the wind. Now, you're in an agrarian society. They get rain two times a year in Israel. About this time of year, toward the end of February and into uh, the first of March, they they get their latter rains. Uh, They've already had the former rains back in the fall, back around uh, the end of October, November, the 1st of December. They get rain two times a year. These people don't get rain like we do. Uh, And they don't get the amount of rain that we do. And yet they're all farmers. They're all raising herds and flocks. And and, uh, here are men that are out there in their fields and everything is withering and dying. And they look up and off in the distance, they see a dark cloud. And that dark cloud begins to just kind of boil and roil and it, is, it, it grows and it comes closer. It's being carried by the wind and there's an excitement in the heart of that farmer that this thing, this is growing, this is going to be a storm. We're going to get some rain here on this crop and, and yet it just blows completely on by. You know what that is? That is the vacuity of duplicity. It is empty. It's vacuous. There is nothing to it. It gets you all excited and hepped up, but when you get beneath the surface, there is nothing life giving in it whatsoever. In the duplicity that comes, there is nothing that brings life, nothing that brings wholeness. It is just simply empty. Listen to Proverbs 25, 14. Like clouds and wind without rain is a man who boasts of his gifts falsely, who runs around the place talking about how much he knows and how much experience he has and how good he is at something. Number three, the morality of duplicity or the mortality of duplicity. Look at this the autumn trees without fruit, they're lush, they're green but they're doubly dead, uprooted. You know, in the fall, we'll get up to the mountains and up where we go, there are so many apple orchards everywhere, everywhere, everywhere. And people are up there by the thousands uh, going out. You know, you go out and pick your own apples. And, and uh, you'll, you'll, every once in a blue moon, you'll come across a tree that is as lush and as green and as it seems to be flourishing and you will look for fruit and there is no fruit. And what a, what, a, what, a, what a farmer will tell you is that the thing is dead on the inside. And he says that thing is dead on the inside. It produces no fruit. Oh, it looks great. But it produces no fruit. And he says, I've got to cut it down, dig the stump out, and I'll plant another tree right there. That's what he says. This is the mortality of duplicity. It looks like it's alive, but in all honesty, it's dead. Then you come to the productivity of duplicity. Well, does it produce anything? Verse 13, wild waves of the sea casting up their own shame like foam. When we were in Florida, Debbie Debbie loved to run on the beach. And so I would take her down and she would run on the beach and I would sit down and read a book. What's funny about that? (laughs) So I let her run if that's what she wanted to do. Not me. I'm not running. Uh, So I would take her out there. And a lot of times we would go when there was a storm offshore. Sometimes there would be a storm that would be moving up just off the coast. And when it did, the, 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 the water was just in turmoil. And it was something to see, the fierceness of it, the power of it, these waves coming in, one behind the other, behind the other. Sometimes one wave would crash into another wave because you'd get crosswinds there. And the only thing that all of that work and all of that energy and all of that sound and fury would produce would be foam. And oftentimes it'd just be foam all over the beach. It was a mess. And you would see balls of foam just start rolling. It would, there'd be a ball of foam and it would just roll down the beach. And, and uh, the kids would run after it to try to catch it. And they'd grab it and it would just dissipate in their hand. That's what he's saying right here. That there are those that carry on with such fury and such intensity and such, um, such productivity. You think they're producing something in this church. Just watch them. But what they produce is nothing but bubbles. It dissipates. It doesn't amount to anything. And then the irrationality of duplicity. He comes to the last of these five illustrations. And he says they wander like stars. For whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. A star. A star is the word for a star in Greek. A star. But do you know the word for wandering? It's the word... Planetes, planet. It's where we get the word planet from. Planetes, it wanders. Stars are fixed. They don't wander. But in the ancient world where they had no global positioning system and they had no compass and they had no Siri and they had no Google Maps, they would follow stars. And sometimes these stars would move. And they would get off and find this bright star and start to follow it. And it would lead them off in this direction and then further out down in this direction. And what they were following was a planet, not a star. And it caused them to get off direction and wander. He says that's what these people are like. They don't lead you to Christ. They don't lead you to the Word of God. They don't lead you to come and bow yourself down before the authority of Almighty God in His Word and His Messiah. They get you off on some retreat. They get you off on some book. They get you off on some something that is out there, some fad, some trend, some fanciful concept of this is going to be big in the church and I want to be the one leading it. Let me tell you something. Just get to Jesus. Just get to his word. And get yourself there and stay there. And don't follow anything bright and shiny that wanders off in all different directions. Well, let me give you the last thing. And the last thing is this. He comes and he tells us this. That God's wisdom tells us that apostasy withers In the face of a genuine witness. When you stand up to this junk. They'll eventually back off. And move away. But it takes somebody standing up. Listen to what he says now. In 14 and 15. Here's really the illustration. Or or here's the application. He comes to make application. And he's going to use somebody. And he's going to say this is what you need to be like. Verse 14. It was also about these men that Enoch. In the seventh generation, you're going to read about Enoch back in Genesis chapter 5. He was, um, he was the father of Methuselah, and Methuselah had Lemek and Limech had a kid by the name of Noah. And Noah was the preacher of righteousness in his generation. For 120 years, he built that ark, and for 120 years, he was preaching, y'all better get right uh, because there's a flood coming. And before Noah ever did that, God had his own prophet, Enoch. And Enoch preached. Now, you're not going to read that back in Genesis 5. You're not going to hear from Enoch anymore until you get to Luke chapter 3. And in Luke chapter 3, you're going to discover that in the lineage of Mary, Enoch was her great forefather. He's in the lineage of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. You're not going to hear any more in the New Testament from him until you get to Hebrews chapter 11. And it's going to tell you that Enoch was a man who lived and walked by faith. He walked by faith with the Lord and the Bible tells us God took him because of his righteousness. And without faith it's impossible to please him. Listen to this. By faith Enoch was taken up that he would not see death and he was not found because God took him up. For he obtained the witness that before being taken up, he was pleasing God. He was doing what? He was living by faith. How do I please God? Live by faith. And he so lived by faith that one day as he walked with God, he got so far that God looked at him and said, Enoch, we're closer to my house than your house. Just come on home with me. Now what did Enoch do? You get one more word about Enoch in the New Testament. right here in Jude. He preached. He prophesied. John MacArthur says that outside of Genesis 3.15, which is where God prophesies the coming Messiah, that the seed of woman would crush the head of the serpent, he says this is the first prophecy in the Bible. Now, we don't get it back in Genesis chapter 5, but you do get it in Jude right here. And in Jude, this is what he did. He stood up in his generation. He went against the flow of the culture. He didn't care which way the culture was going. He was walking with God. He wasn't interested in which way society was going. He, was, he wasn't interested in what the Supreme Court or Congress or the White House had to say. He was walking with God. And he looks at his generation, whether they agreed with him or not. And he said this, it was about these men that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied saying, Behold, the Lord came with as many thousands of his holy ones. He was preaching judgment. He says, you need to understand judgment is on its way. It'll come out in his great grandson's day, in Noah's day. But here he was already preaching, you'd better get right. To execute judgment upon all. Now watch this. He's going to compare these apostates with Enoch. There is Enoch, the man who walked with God. Now watch this in verse 15. He's going to use this word four times. To execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds. You, you You can do things in an ungodly way. And they have done in an ungodly way. And all of these harsh, ungodly sinners have spoken against him. They've spoken against God, against God's word. There it is, four times, ungodly, 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 ungodly. They've spoken against him. They've spoken against God. They've spoken against his word. He says, there's your example. You like Enoch Contend for the faith in your day, regardless of what your biology teacher tells you. You contend for the faith in your generation, in your day, regardless of what your brother in law is saying. You contend for the faith, like Enid, in your generation, even if you're the only one giving out the warning. You contend for the faith. Because God's word is true. Y'all ever heard of Babe Pinelli? Babe Pinelli was uh, an official umpire for baseball in the day of Lou Gehrig, Babe Ruth. Uh, His name was Babe too. And in fact, he called Babe Ruth out. Babe Pinelli called Babe Ruth out in a ball game on strikes one time. Uh, that uh, ball came across the plate and uh, Babe said it was a ball. And Babe Pinelli said, no, it's a strike, you're out. And Babe Ruth turned around and got in his face. And about that time, 40,000 people in the stand stood up and started booing. And Babe Ruth looked at Babe Pinelli, and he said, do you hear that? 40,000 people know what that was. That was a ball. And Everybody just froze because they knew. That Babe Pinelli was going to throw Babe Ruth out the game. <laughs> but Babe Pinelli looked back at him and he says, It doesn't make any difference how many hollers it. Only my opinion counts. Amen. This is the only thing that counts. Let's stand. Now, I have no idea what God is saying to your heart this morning, but I believe God speaks to us. And I believe God's speaking to somebody here this morning that you need to make a decision for Christ. You need to come and give your life to Christ. God's word for you is this. Confess your sins and be baptized. Come and confess your sins. Name him as Lord and Savior of your life. Confess that and be saved. And then follow his example by following him in baptism. I invite you to come to Jesus today. Others of you that are here, you need to come and join this fellowship, be a part of this church family. Some of you need to come and just get at the altar this morning. Maybe you see some of these characteristics just springing up in your life, and you want to come and say, Oh, Lord, forgive me. I don't want to be that. I want to be your servant among your people, one who builds up, not one who tears down. Whatever it is God's saying to you, would you come, Father, in these moments? This invitation is your invitation. I'm extending it for you. I'm inviting those who would come to put their faith and trust in you. I'm inviting others to come and be a part of this fellowship, this church that is your church. And I'm calling your people who have gotten away from your word to come back to their Lord and Savior. Father, I pray that this invitation honors you and that our response would honor you. And I pray that in Jesus' name. With your heads bowed as Kirkwood plays, you come right now. Thank you for listening to this recording from Valleydale Church. To find more or to connect with us about what you just heard, check us out at valleydale.org.